Hey, thanks for tuning into The Scoop. Before we get started with the episode, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Blockset. They've been a big supporter of The Scoop and The Block for quite some time now. Blockset offers the industry's leading digital asset toolkit. With flexibility, security, and scalability in mind, enterprises and developers alike can get to market quickly and efficiently connect to multiple blockchains from one single source API. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today. Stay tuned for more information later in the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into this very special edition of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. It's been a very interesting week in the stock market world. Last week, we saw a number of names soar to incredible eye-popping heights from GameStop to AMC. And a lot of people have a lot of questions about not only what push those stocks to those highs, but also why Robinhood, which has kind of been the key figure in this market drama, shut down trading in those names. And what's the deal with payment for order flow? And what's the deal with these brokers that are shutting down trading? We're going to unpack a lot of that with our guest today, Shane Swanson. He is over at Greenwich Associates. He's kind of been over the past year, probably one of my market structure whisperers. He He's helped me unpack some of the interesting nuances of this market. Shane, we're really excited to have you on the show. How has it been for you over there? What what type of um, things are you digging into these days? Well, thanks so much for having me, Frank. It has been a pretty busy week. <laughs> We've had a few <laughs> things going on. Uh, you know, we're trying to do is pay attention to really the whole ecosystem of the markets and provide a little bit of clarity around what is going on, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, and you know where we can find improvements. And I think that's been kind of my uh, drumbeat more than anything else is if there's something that we can do and do better, what is it? And that's one of the more interesting things I think here as we look at the past week, I've found, interestingly enough, the mechanics of the market worked pretty well, but only if you understand what those mechanics are. And so explaining that and getting that information out, I think is important. And the industry hasn't necessarily done a terribly good job of that so far. It's trying, but in particular in the height of the uh, clearing issues, Certainly, I think there were some missteps in how that that information was getting out. I think we have like almost two different narratives playing out that are explaining, at <laughs> yeah, at least, right, that kind of account for what has happened, right? Um, folks who maybe are not as plugged in, they see heightened volatility, they see random stock surging, and then they see brokerages basically saying you can't trade these stocks. And for many folks, they chalk that up to these brokers acting in maybe a nefarious manner or in an irresponsible manner. There's also a parallel narrative that that sort of points to the market infrastructure or the market underpinnings that kind of explain a lot of what's going on. So 
How do you sort of explain to people who maybe don't get the more wonky market structure aspects of the market about what, what happened last week? Yeah, you have to start, obviously, with what happened on the stocks themselves. So the social media phenomenon around why these stocks started rocketing up, you know, primarily around Wall Street bets, the subreddit forum, where they were being touted as these were either, you know, there were undervalued plays to begin, you know, that there may have been turnaround uh, stories in particular uh, as GME started. But then there were also the you know, potential for more esoteric uh, market structure plays around. There were short positions that had been built up against some of these. And when you have large moves up in stocks, you can have basically um, cascading effects of when you have those large short positions and a big move up, those people who have shorts now have to go to the market to cover their shorts. That drives the stock further up that creates this snowball uh, running uh, you know, rampant up effect. So that was kind of the first part of the story was there was this massive push up in many of these stocks that had these large short positions bets basically against them and the social media you know, collective endeavor to drive those prices up to see if you could actually cause or exacerbate some of these short squeeze effects. So that is, you know, stage one of the story. And bluntly, that was fairly effective. You know, there's nothing that by its sole purpose seems wrong about that, right? You're allowed to look at public data. You're allowed to see what is the short interest if it's available on those stocks. And if you can convince, you know, others in the marketplace that the stocks are undervalued or that, you know, potentially a short squeeze could occur, as long as you're not providing, you know, false data or false information to others in the marketplace, that is kind of how the market works. People go on CNBC and put out, you know, their thesis on what is trending in a market and why they think a stock is over or undervalued all the time. This just happened to be in a, you know, new social medium or an underappreciated social medium and started to rally a large body of retail traders around it. And, you know, I think if nothing else, it demonstrates that when you get large bodies of retail investors directed in uh, one endeavor, it can be a force to be reckoned with. So that, you know, stage one of the story is they were very successful in engendering this momentum in these limited number of stocks. And they actually were, you know, rising, you know, these stocks then rose well above any conceivable um, historic norms. And that's kind of where you get to stage two of the equation and where things start to break down a little bit from the, you know, risk perspective of both the brokers that are handling these trades and the marketplace as a whole, as you know, again, market professionals know the financial services industry is extraordinarily highly regulated. And one of the ways it's highly regulated is in its uh, requirements around capital. Every To be a broker dealer, you have to have a certain amount of capital. And kind of depending on your status of broker dealer, and there are a number of types of broker dealer you can be, depends on how much minimum net capital you have to have on hand at any moment in time. 
And so you can be, you know, a, you know, $5,000 introducing broker dealer all the way up to a, you know, self-clearing broker dealer. And a market maker has to have a certain amount of capital on hand for every stock in which they make a market up to a maximum. And that, you know, requirement around that net capital constrains to a lesser or greater extent what type of trading a firm can do, how much credit they can extend, and how much risk they can take. And normally, that's always built around historic models. You can forecast what's going to happen looking out into the future based on what's happened in the past. You build some buffers around that and you make sure you have enough capital on hand or the ability to get additional capital from you know, your lenders of choice to be able to maintain operations. But in this circumstance, these you know, names ran up so far outside of the normal bounds you have to go to the other side of this equation, which is clearing and settlement of the trades. And this is where it gets wonky, no matter who you are, uh, because in the US markets, when you buy a stock, you don't actually buy that, you don't get that stock in hand immediately. We have what's called T plus two settlement, which means T is trading date, and two is you actually get the stock two days later. And that's actually much, much better than it used to be when, you know, years ago it used to be T plus five, and then we improved that to T plus three, and now recently we improved it to T plus two. And some of that's historic. We used to have paper, you know, literal stock certificates that got pushed around and people had to check off that, yes, you own this stock, and I had to send it off to somebody and they received it, and then it got sent on, and that's why it was days of processing. We've gotten much better and electronified a huge amount of the process, but there are still you know, transfers into, you know, we call it into street name. You've got to move these things around. Capital has to be addressed. And so because of that, it takes time to check off all those boxes and to make sure everything's done and done appropriately. Everyone has until T plus two for that to be done. Let's unpack some of this just for a second. Um, that first phase, I think we can all wrap our heads around what happened. The insane run up in some of these stocks triggered by this unprecedented to an extent retail social media based movement into some of these names, which then triggered this cascading effect. I want to double click on that for a second before we really dig into that second phase that you were just describing. Have we seen anything like that? We've certainly seen folks come on CNBC, Fox Business, and push their names and firms that are maybe short certain stocks come out and unpack their thesis for why they're short. And then obviously that spills into the market. But have we ever seen anything happen to this same extent where the cascading effect that results from people coming out and kind of providing their their thesis for a given name equate to something this impactful? Not to this extent. Um, again, this was broad across a number of names. We've seen it individual names have certainly run up. You've more, um, I would say it's more frequent where we've seen kind of erroneous type of transactions, you know, whether that's a rogue algorithm may have driven a single stock to either unsustainable heights or driven it down to, you know, almost nothing. Uh, those types of events have occurred, but they've been, one, very short-lived. 
So something will spike, it'll get out of bounds. It's clearly not being driven by anything, you know, where, where there's no basis behind it, not even, you know, a social media basis behind it. It's just nonsensical. And in those circumstances, the regulators will step in and either halt the stock or pause the stock for some period of time and say something really unusual has happened here and we have to we have to stop and make sure that things aren't broken and that's kind of par for the course that has happened and we've seen that happen multiple times in the past because it's happened the systems have been improved you know the regulators have required both the industry participants as well as the exchanges and the uh, alternative trading systems to improve their systems to cause those things to be prohibited more so you don't see them as frequently as you may have you know 10 or 15 years ago but it can still happen in some edge cases uh, but what we haven't seen is this broad based drive in you know you know, relatively still, you know, small number of stocks, but which did have a basis, right? There was clearly, you could see this was being discussed on the the Reddit sub forum, Wall Street bets. There was something that was driving it. It wasn't some sort of, okay, rogue algorithm, which has no basis. And therefore we should just step in and stop everything from trading. You know, when there's no basis and you know, something's wrong, it's easy to take action because something's clearly broken and you should stop it. Well, that wasn't the case here. So the regulators, you know, toolkit was somewhat limited, quite honestly. And, you know, rightly so. You don't want to stop trading just because you don't like what you see, <laughs> because that's not what the market is. It's supposed to be the free exchange of, you know, ideas. My idea is I believe something's going up. I'm willing to buy it. You may take the other side of that. You think it's going down. You're willing to sell it. Or maybe you just need liquidity and you want to sell into that. So I want to stop so, you right. I want to stop you really quickly yeah, there because that's kind of part of the controversy around what what happened last week, which was mostly folks sympathetic with this Wall Street bets movement, if you want to call it that, felt that there was in the market this force that because they were maybe on the other side of the trade or in cahoots to some respect with the other sides of the side of the trade they then put the kibosh on on trading to put an end to this you're saying that that wasn't necessarily the case right yeah i think that this goes to kind of my drumbeat around communication transparency and um, clarity so again going back to what happened why did things stop trading what were the issues around it um, if you're, and I, I like to use examples because I'm a simple guy and, and examples seem to help, right? If I'm a broker and I have, you know, $10,000 worth of capital and I'm, these aren't the accurate numbers, but say that allows me to trade, you know, $100,000 worth in the market because I have some leverage capabilities and somebody is i'm then going to let somebody trade with me i'm going to give them margin which means i'm going to lend them money and they're going to trade and i'm exposed to that lending risk and they trade all the way up and they use all my hundred thousand dollars that i'm allowed to expose myself to once i hit that hundred thousand dollars i can't trade anymore i can't expose myself to any more risk I have used up the bucket of capital of which I am allowed to trade now. 
And if I only have one client and they know that, and I've told them that's all you can do, it's pretty simple, right? We set up that agreement on the front end. I say, this is how much you can trade. This is how far you can go. And when you hit that limit, we're going to shut it down because I can't take any more risk. It's a lot harder when you're signing up, you know, hundreds of thousands of you know, new customers on a rolling basis constantly, and you're extending credit to them, you know, as a business model. They're off, you know, most of these new uh, retail broker firms are offering zero commission. And so where do they make their money? Well, they make it off of lending you the funds to, you know, do margin trading and other types of activity, which again, they have to make their money somehow. When they hit their limits, wherever those might be and however they're established, that has an impact. And when you figure, you know, again, when we figure out what happened here, it's pretty clear that those limits were getting hit. And, you know, again, the kind of the arcane nature of it is, you know, you have as a firm, you are either a self-clearing firm, which means you handle all the back end around this T plus two. How does the money move around to make sure that everybody gets taken care of when you get to that settlement date? Or you have another firm that does clearing for you. You're an introducing broker and you have a clearing firm that does all that for you, but you still have a clearing deposit one way or another. You have money on deposit somewhere and that money when it's on deposit is used just to protect settlement, you know, uh, practices. Industry wide before these stocks made these, you know, huge run ups to, you know, unprecedented levels that no model could foresee. The rough amount that I'd seen quoted that was on deposit with the central clearing organizations was around, you know, $26 billion industry wide. And when these stocks were in this run up phase overnight, that went from $26 billion to $33 billion. Even for very large, sophisticated financial firms coming up with, you know, multi-billion dollars overnight is real money and has real impact because those billions of dollars you, you have to now put on deposit with the clearing firm, that's not money you can do anything else with. It is segregated at the clearing firm and is required to be, you can't it with the clearing firm to make sure that that guarantees settlement will occur no matter what. Somebody can go out of business and yet everybody who is trading will be made whole because of those security deposits with the clearing firms. You know, the the example everyone points to is back when Lehman Brothers went down, you know, you want to have big money on deposits so that there isn't a huge issue on getting the shares that were traded with and on behalf of Lehman Brothers, you know, when Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt overnight. The bottom line there is you you had firms like Fidelity and Robinhood and others see their clearinghouse deposit requirements become outstripped by the activity that was occurring on their platforms. Yeah. the And again, part of it, I would say it's the activity on their platforms and the fact that they were, again, trading or allowing their traders to, you know, you have margin accounts so that the dollars weren't all on hand from their clients so that there was some credit risk that the brokers were taking on behalf of their clients, that credit risk exposure had to be covered somewhere. 
and the way it, you know, where it gets covered is at uh, the clearing organization. So yeah, the amount of trading and the fact that those stocks now, you know, were likely to, you know, they had run up X thousand percent, which means they are, you know, in a modeling perspective, that much more likely to run down X thousand percent. And they need to be, and they being the clearing organizations need to be sure that the dollars are on hand to ensure that everybody is covered in the case that happens. So the way the firms, you know, handle that, I think is what's important to note. You know, when you are a broker and you, there's a normal process where you have a clearing deposit on hand with the clearing organizations and overnight you send them, here's my clearing file, which has all of my transactions. They review those, they review everybody else's, and they send you basically an overnight uh, notification that says, here's how much more or less money you need to put on deposit with the central clearing organization. And you know, Robinhood said publicly the first, the first notice they got overnight, Wednesday night to Thursday morning last week was, uh, you need to put $3 billion into your account. Not many firms have $3 billion just on the side that you can quickly and immediately redeposit and not be able to use for any other purpose from, you know, account A to account B. And over the course of, you know, that, I guess, early morning hours, they negotiated that down to 700 million, still a lot of money. Uh, and they had to raise that in kind of, you know, extraordinary circumstances. The, End result of that is, okay, they raise this money, they put that on deposit at the clearing organization, but that means that they're basically maxed out on the risk they can take. They've been told by the clearing organization, you're, you know, from yesterday to today, you needed to put up 700 additional new dollars, 700 million more dollars with us. The fear always being then that tomorrow, if things continue to run up, they may say, and we need another 700 million or billion or $2 billion. And if they just continued to increase exposure, if they continue to extend the credit, if they continue to go long, all that does is increase that balance risk. So not, I think, without reason, they decided that they needed to only go into basically liquidate only mode. So you can sell out of those positions, but you can't increase those positions. The challenge, I think, for, again, the industry as a whole is how do you communicate that to the user base, right? It's customer service business. It's a highly regulated customer service business, but it is a customer service business. And, you know, no, you know, Shane Swanson, who is trading on his account, doesn't really care that you had to put up $700 million to your clearing broker. That doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is, hey, I tried to come in and I wanted, I was expecting to be able to buy GME or AMC or whatever stock it was the next day. And I was told I couldn't. And, you know, how they communicated that across the board, I think could have been better. So you know, some firms did a decent job. Some firms could have done much better. And I think when you don't have a very clear and, uh, you know, transparent communication to your user base, that allows some of that conspiracy theorist fuel to the fire, unfortunately. And so I think that's part of what drove some of those, oh, maybe there are you know, these you know, smoky figures in back rooms making these dark deals. It, you know, that's unlikely in my estimation. <laughs> and it really just has to do with Robinhood 
at a certain given point in time, not having the necessary funds to shore up their account with their, with, with the clearinghouse to then enable trading in these names. Right. I think at, you know, a number of the firms had, you know, were required to put up more money and when they had to put up that much more money, and again, they have to be forward thinking to some level here, right? You've been required to put up this much more money overnight and you have to think, what am I going to potentially have to put up tomorrow as well? So if I just continue to increase my exposure, if I had to put up 700 million tonight and I increased my exposure, you know, doubled it again, stock continued, you know, by just everybody, if the stock didn't even go up in price, but I, everybody bought more stock and it stayed at that price. Now I may have to put up another 700 million or X number of dollars, which I may or may not have. So at some point you need to have controls around what that risk is. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. Let's look at this new paradigm for a second where brokers, at least from what I've seen in the market, have never been exposed to this level of risk. They've never been in a situation where they've had to put up this type of collateral with this type of backdrop in trading activity. So where do you go from here? What do you, what do you do now? Do we strip the T plus two settlement system? Do uh, brokers now have to have more capital sitting on their balance sheet to be prepared for something like this? But even to your point, even if you're prepared for the next day, you may not necessarily be prepared for the day after that. So I guess there's two questions here. First is, what, what type of policy changes could come out of this and what type of internal changes do you expect to come out of the, the brokers? Yeah, no, I think it's a very good question and it's challenging, right? To your point, if we just come out and say, everybody needs to have X billions of dollars either on deposit with the clearing houses all the time, which again, that those monies are segregated and can't be used for any other purpose, that's going to blow up everybody's business models and not just these new entrants, right? If we said everybody had to put up 10x, you know, their current clearing deposits to forecast into the future that maybe something like this could happen or worse, no one could really fund that or only a very small number. And then you've gotten rid of a ton of competition in the marketplace. And that's a negative across the board. So that seems unlikely. That's probably not where we end up. You know, as an industry, we can certainly push for reducing the settlement time more. Uh, the less when you go from two T plus two to T plus one or T plus one and a half, you know, a little bit extra, 
you do reduce the amount of risk. And so you could probably reduce the amount of required clearing deposits. It's not the same as T plus zero, but T plus zero is a huge uh, quantum leap forward that, you know, again, even going from T plus two to T plus one is multi-year in its outlook. So, you know, that's not a, hey, we decide as an industry, we're going to do it. And in six months, we're there. That's a very, you know, that's a longer term type of resolution. It's something that the industry is already looking at, has been working towards, will continue to march down that path. And maybe this just gives us an extra shot uh, in the arm of accelerating that How plan, would that happen? How do happen we go from T plus two to either T plus one or somewhere closer to real-time settlement as an industry? How does DTCC lay the foundation for that? How do other market participants all get involved? Because to your point, this isn't something that one person can check off and then it happens. How do we get the the ball moving on that? Yeah, um, DTCC has actually you know already been working on this. I think they put out their uh, one position paper back in 2018 about how to further uh, reduce the settlement cycle from T plus two to T plus one, one and a half. They're working on a proof of concept right now that is actually looking at uh, distributed ledger technology um, as a potential solution for T plus zero uh, real time type of settlement. But, you know, that's, I would kind of off the cuff, that's a, you know, 5, 10, 15 year type of uh, outlook. It's really just, hey, is this something that could work? Does the technology even support what we need? Greenwich has actually done some research uh, into that. And one of the challenges of moving to a completely new technology like that is that one of the benefits we receive today in the current settlement system is that we have built a number of efficiencies into how we handle things. Uh, and that includes that we are able to do net settlement of transactions. So when you're trading and you have a bunch of buys and a bunch of sells in the same security, you can actually net that up and you don't have to put up as much capital against that. We can do that across, uh, you know, we do that on a broader industry basis. If you are moving completely away from our current system to a brand new infrastructure, how does that cross-reference with our current financial systems, that could be a stumbling block. And it's something you know we have to figure out if we move away from current, you know, our current stock-based system to kind of marking it on the on the ledger, on the distributed um, you know, DLT. So that challenge is not a, a, a small challenge to undertake. I think shortening the settlement cycle, you know, that is again, there's kind of an action plan that's out there. It is, you know, something that I would say has to have a impetus for the industry to kind of get behind it again. It's a ton of work. It was a ton of work to go from three to two. Uh, to go from two to one is, again, uh, at least as much, if not more work. But, you know, if we, you know, if the regulators look at it, if the industry feels it's important, and uh, hey, if the retail base says, you know, we feel that this was not well understood. We didn't understand that these challenges could hit us on the back end. And if this is something that would help, because it would reduce the amount of you know, required deposits on the back end because of the shortened settlement cycle, maybe kind of that groundswell pushes that forward. It doesn't reduce the risk entirely, though, of course. 
there's always going to be some, you know, exogenous risk that something happens and you may still have the, you know, there's always a system level risk within an organization that something happens and they have to put the brakes on, whether that's in a single stock, whether that's across the board. And again, I'm going to you know, go back to my, my drumbeat of communication, clarity, make sure people know what the rules of the road are. One thing, you know, again, I'm an attorney by background and training, and I know how important it is to read contracts. I bore my wife and family to death. I can't imagine <laughs> like that's true. And they'll hand me, you know, a, I, a I, I doubt that's true. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> and I'll sit there and I'll read these template contracts and I'll, you know, find something and I'll try to make changes to them. But online, that's really hard. And when you sign up online for one of these brokerage accounts and you do click through like you do with any other online click through agreement, it's pretty difficult to know what's in those. It's not a new problem for the industry that happened, you know, when you were going to a broker, you know, to their office and you sat there and had a cup of coffee and they handed you the agreement. I don't know how many out of a hundred people would have actually sat there and read through the whole thing and you know, saw all the rules and, uh, you know, the ability that the broker has always had to restrict trading in the accounts if needed to maintain the safety of the organization. But it's a lot harder to ensure somebody has seen it when it's a click through on the computer. So, you know, again, knowing what the rules of the road are, knowing what your ability is at the front end, hey, I'm signing up for this new account. I may have never traded ever before in my life. And all I know is that it kind of looks like I can do whatever I want in an account. Shane, I think, I think you're making, I think this is one of the most important points that we can glean from this entire market event. If you want to call it an event, it's more of a series of, event, of events. But this idea that trading has been made or designed in a way that seems as simple as buying something on Amazon. You know, we know the risk with buying things online. Sometimes things can get damaged. They don't get delivered to the right address. You know, you, you, you get a pair of shoes that turn out to be too big or too small, whatever it is. But you know the risk there. But when you have trading look like shopping on Amazon or buying something at a store, those same risks aren't as apparent. You think, you know, I'm going to put in an order here. I'm going to get it. And that's all I need to worry about. And I don't know, for some reason, I guess these risks maybe haven't been apparent. There's been other outages at Robinhood, but for the most part, you know, free stock trading has been fairly easy. And for most of the firm's history over the past, you know, nearly a decade, things have gone relatively smoothly. Is this just a wake-up call that should have happened, you know, five years ago? You know, I think it is a fair way of looking at it um, that, look, every system has technology issues, and I think maybe everybody's used to that, right? Everybody's gone online, and for whatever reason, whether it was your local system or, you know, somebody cut the hard wire between here and, and your provider, you've had outages. So everybody's kind of used to that experience. Maybe that's why when there have been outages on any number of providers, you know, people have been kind of like, eh, you know, they're upset about it, but it's been more flash in the pan, right? Eh, I'm upset, but oh, hey, it's back. Okay, well, I was upset yesterday, but I'm back and I'm using it today. 
you know, like you said, this has been a series of events. This has lasted longer. And these are customer service issues that people are used to, you know, we're used to exactly, you know, platforms being down for a certain amount of time, but I guess in the way that we're maybe accustomed to a store being out of stock of our favorite food or favorite shirt brand. Well, that's not how wall street's supposed to work. There should always be, um, you know, ample liquidity for me to get in and out of Apple or whatever have you. And I think that is the generally speaking in normal circumstances, 99.9% of the time, that's true, right? Again, it's, there was a kind of a confluence of events here uh, that drove things to an unusual and unanticipated level. And that is really, again, part of the story that, you know, maybe we, we as the industry experts or the industry participants see all the time is that most and a lot of what we do is based around, you know, historical modeling, right? We model what happened yesterday to try to figure out what might happen tomorrow so that we can manage those risks. And when things don't happen normally, that kind of breaks those models down. And, you know, what happens then, right? And in this, and again, even then, in most instances, things work pretty well. Um, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, the markets were incredibly active, right? The, and, you know, while the prices may not have always been where people wanted them to be, the markets were, in particular, the equity markets were open, trading occurred, you could buy, you could sell. So the infrastructure of the marketplace is incredibly robust. This kind of peels back a couple of layers of the onion to, hey, but how do we ensure that everybody is protected all the way through? And, you know, we get back to this kind of arcane thing called clearance and settlement and these central clearing corporations to make sure, hey, we're putting a lot of trust into those organizations to make sure we, when I do hit click buy and I say, hey, I got that stock in my account. You know, I think I've got it in my account. And in fact, you know, well, really doesn't get there until two days later. And well, really, it's not even in my name. It's still held in the broker's name. Right? <laughs> you know, those little pieces don't, you know, do you have to know that? Probably not. For But maybe you know, now you do. And maybe that's something that's, that we'll see come out of exactly come out of this is uh, maybe regulators in D.C., will require some sort of educational test, which which speaks to this broader concern about what comes next. We, we've kind of talked about it from a more pedantic uh, market structure perspective, but from the everyday user, uh, and this might be a good place to sort of close out the conversation, is this going to make trading A, more or rather less accessible uh, through various educational tests or screening tests of some sort? and be more expensive. If brokers have to put up more collateral or have to adjust to T plus one or real-time settlement, which comes with costs, are they going to pass that down to the consumer? That's something that I'm thinking about. Are we going to see maybe even commissions come back as a result of dealing with this new paradigm we're in? I think that's um, interesting. It's always hard to go backwards on cost, right? Um, So I think that will... Uh, well, it, it all depends. If the costs are uh, egregious enough that the industry has to absorb, certainly you know commissions could come back. 
um, you know, movement from T plus two to T plus one settlement, it would be over a long enough time horizon, I believe, that that would not be something that would end up, you know, impacting the retail investor in terms of cost. I think they'd still enjoy uh, zero commission trading. I think, you know, I would hope we wouldn't make investing more, uh, you would put more barriers towards investing making sure that you know the information is more uh, clear that it's more highlighted that you have you know again a better ui experience of you know i'm not just you know scrolling through and clicking the yes i accept this agreement at the bottom of a page mm -hmm. you know methods of which you have to actually prove that there's been some you know cognitive <laughs> recognition there mm -hmm. i don't know if testing again i'm a little you know hesitant around some of that just because you know again you want to make sure that you have broad access to the markets which i do think mostly is a is in in most instances is just a is a unalloyed good overall again as long as people have you know full understanding of the risks inherent in what they're doing and the limitations you kind of when we talk about what what changes may occur and what could drive cost back to the retail investor uh, we haven't really talked too much about payment for order flow you know it is one again one of those little arcane things it's more transparent today than it's ever been in the past um, you know there's kind of two pieces to the puzzle where as you know, Robinhood has order flow, it has an obligation to seek best execution for those shares, as do all the, you know, all the all the retail order sending firms. And you know, often they'll go to market makers for that. Market makers compete on best execution. They provide price improvement to those orders vis-a-vis -vis what they could get if it went directly to exchange. And they entice some of that order flow through payment for order flow. So the price improvement component goes directly to the retail trader. If I'm offering to, you know, buy something and it's offered at ten dollars, and I send it, it gets sent to a market maker. I might buy it at, you know, nine point nine nine eight, you know, slight price improvement over what I could get it otherwise. And then the broker who sent it to the market maker may also get a very small payment for sending them that order. And those two kind of levers are what you know help drive some profits to the brokers it drives you know money back to the retail in terms of price improvement and it drives a little bit of money back to the broker in terms of payment for order flow if you suddenly say well we don't like payment for order flow so let's get rid of it entirely you know that's some of the funds that have helped to provide for zero commission if you get rid of it in one fell swoop it's a fairly significant lever that suddenly goes well do the brokers then again need to make up that money somewhere else and do they do that by reinstituting commissions it's an open question i think which raises another interesting question about how payment for order flow kind of has been tied into this entire saga i think obviously a lot of people affiliate robinhood with citadel the hedge fund because of the fact that Robinhood routes a lot of its orders, um, I think a plurality of its orders to Citadel Securities, the market making firm. To what degree did um, PFOP play a role in some of what we saw last week outside of just, you know, the usual, usual activity? Yeah, I would say, again, we have to be very careful. And this happens, you know, in some of the public discourse, you know, the 
segregation between Citadel, the hedge fund, and Citadel, the market maker, is very well defined. You know, they have strong information barriers. Full disclosure, I did spend, I did do a stint at Citadel inside of the market maker in their market structure team. And so I'm, you know, kind of from the inside, I'm well aware of how they do enforce those information barriers and they're quite legitimate. You know, so when you talk about Citadel Hedge Fund as an entity, that's that's a different thing than Citadel the market maker. So in terms of how did payment portal flow play into this, you know, if anything, the market maker in these, you know, huge soaring stocks, they are interested in interacting with retail order flow. And I, again, saw the same story I'm sure everyone else did that Citadel put out around, you know, they saw fairly even-sided order flow, even in GME on one of the more active days, you know, which is kind of the way you expect market maker flow to work, right? You expect to see about the same number of buys and sells because part of what they're doing is earning money on the spread. They are willing to interact with flow from the retail market because, again, while in these instances it may have been somewhat more you know, directional flow in the vast majority of cases when you interact with retail, it's less likely that you're interacting with an order that, oh, here's 100 shares of stock ABCD. That's usually it. It was a retail order. It was 100 shares of ABCD, and that's all there is. When you're interacting on you know, the exchanges and you don't know the counterparty, it can be, I'm interacting with 100 shares of ABCD, and the next order that comes behind that is a million shares because it was a, you know, a large institutional player and they had to move a lot of stock and you just got run over. So you know, that's you know, adverse selection in action. So from outside of it now and looking in, I would say payment portal flow, really only thing that would have happened in these circumstances is that the market maker was, you know, interacting with a you know same level of flow or more than they normally would because these stocks were so active. Shane Swanson. This has been quite the conversation. It's nice to get information out there. Hopefully, future Robinhood users will listen, future brokerage users will listen, um, and then obviously the, the usual suspects to get a sense of what exactly went down last week. We appreciate you taking the time to come on the show to break it down for us. We hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Scoop. If you like the episode, follow us on Twitter at The Scoop Pod for updates about future episodes and show highlights from previous episodes. If you really like this episode, or even if you hated it, please let us know and leave a review where you prefer to listen to podcasts. But, and this is the most important thing, folks, if you like this show, please share it. Share it with your friends, your colleagues, and beyond, and let us know what you want to hear in the future from future guests. We're here to serve you, the audience. Follow us on Twitter, download the episode, share the episode, and we'll hear from you next time.